The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the fifth chapter and the fortieth verse. The fortieth verse in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life, and ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. Our Lord, do you remember, uttered those words immediately after he had made the previous statement, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me, and ye will not come to me, that ye might have eternal life. Now, our Lord here, as we saw last Sunday evening when we considered this verse together, our Lord here, having said a number of things to these Jews, having produced his evidence, his witnesses, to prove that he is indeed the Son of God, now turns to them, and begins to address them more directly. He virtually says to them, well, here it is, I've put it all before you, and still you will not come to me, you will not believe on me, that I may give you life. We last Sunday night spent our time in considering this extraordinarily interesting manner in which our Lord made this statement, the form in which he put it. And what we saw was this, that being a Christian rarely means coming to Christ. That's the term. You will not come to me. But as we saw, it's a very great term. It's a term that can be used very glibly and very loosely. But it's a very great and a very profound term. Coming to Christ. Very well, we've considered that together, all that that means and all that that involves in practice. But still, you see, the point our Lord makes is this, that though he has gone on appealing to them, though he has been calling them to come to him in this amazing way, through his miracles, through his teaching, through his preaching, through everything that he is and everything that he has done, still, they will not come to him. And now he therefore begins to show them the reasons why they will not come. They think they've got their reasons, and they think they're very powerful ones. But our Lord proceeds to show them that the reasons which they give are entirely wrong. And that the true reasons for their failure to come to him to receive life are indeed something very different from that which they have imagined. And I want to consider these reasons with you. And let me say that I have but one object in doing so. It is just this. The most terrible thing that can ever happen to any one of us in this world is to go out of it 
without having come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing worse than that, according to his own teaching, according to the teaching of the Bible everywhere. There is nothing more terrifying, more awful, more tragic than, I say, to go out of life, out of the world, without having come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well, then, what can be more important than that we should uh, understand something about and realize uh, something of this terrible condition? And that is my sole reason for putting it before you this evening. Our Lord, I take it, had precisely the same reasons as he put the matter like this before those Jews that were standing back there instead of coming to him. He was anxious for them to see the enormity of their position. He wanted them to see the thing as it really is. So he analyzed it for them. He said, now these are the real reasons why you don't come. And it is because they are still the true reason that I'm calling your attention to them. Let's look at these Jews. Can you conjure up the picture? Here is the very Son of God standing before them and preaching. He's just worked a mighty miracle, healing that man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. Yet in spite of it all, they will not come to him. They're arguing against him. They're trying to say that he's breaking God's law and that he's some sort of an imposter. They're standing back. They will not come to him. Can you imagine anything more terrible, more tragic than that? Well, now then, let's follow our Lord as he analyzes them. Because, as I say, what he had to say about those people standing there is the simple truth still about all those who are not Christians. What is it that accounts for the fact that there is anybody in the world this evening who is not a Christian and who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why will they not come to him that they may receive life? Well, the first answer that he seems to give is a negative one. You notice how he puts it. He says, you will not come unto me. So that my first reason is this. It is not intellectual. Now, I put it in that form quite deliberately. I am probably speaking to someone who is not a Christian. And if I were to ask you to give me your reasons for not being a Christian, I have no doubt at all, but that somehow or another, you would put it in some terms of your intellect and your understanding. That is what people still think is the true reason for their not being Christian. It was the reason with these people. They think it's a matter of their minds, their intellect, their knowledge, and their understanding. But our Lord here is at pains to show and to prove that that is never the real reason. It's something much bigger, something much deeper, something much more terrible. No, but let us deal with this. We must be clear about this. Why do I say that it is never an intellectual reason? 
Why am I thus challenging typical modern thought? Because, as I say, this is the reason that people imagine that they have for not being Christian. Well, I see, it seems to me that there are certain things which suggest themselves at once that ought to be sufficient to dispose of this position once and forever. Here is one. If the reason for not being a Christian is the possession of a mind and a brain and an intellect, well then it would follow of necessity, wouldn't it, that anybody who is a Christian is unintelligent, is lacking in intellect, hasn't got a brain, and is incapable of reason. Now, I think you'll all have to agree, whether you're Christian or not, that that is an inevitable deduction. If the supreme reason for your not being a Christian is because you've got such a brain and understanding, well then it must follow that the other man who is a Christian is a Christian because he lacks all that brilliant intellect and intelligence and understanding. And that, of course, in turn leads me to say this, that it is just not true. History proves that that isn't true. As I've often pointed out from this pulpit before, you read the history of the Christian church and you'll come into contact with some of the greatest minds, the greatest intellects that this world has ever known. How can it be there for a matter of intellect? You've got to establish that I or anybody else who's a Christian is just a fool who can't think and who can't reason. What a monstrous position to be in. But I have a second reason. If this were merely a matter of intellect, how grossly and entirely unfair it would be if the thing that determines whether a man is a Christian or not is his brain and his intellect and understanding, well, isn't it clear that there would be a very great inequality? We all are not gifted with the same brain power. Obviously, some are much more intelligent and more intellectual than others. We can't help that. We are born like that. But there it is. There is this marked and there is this striking inequality. There is a man who's given great intellectual ability. There are other people who have practically none. Now then, if being a Christian and having eternal salvation were a matter of intellect, well, how utterly unfair it would be. At what a great advantage would these rare people be who have these great minds and brains and intellects? How hopeless would be the position of the vast majority? What hope would there be for someone in the heart of Africa who's never been taught and never been trained in any respect and whose mind has never had any opportunity of developing and advancing? You see, at once, the whole thing would be utterly unequal. That's an inevitable deduction to draw if you say that you're not a Christian because of your brain and your intellect and your understanding. And then there is another reason which seems to me to be very powerful at this point. Oh, how important it is that we should examine these positions that we take up. The average man today just takes it for granted. Oh, of course, he says, those people 
They still believe in Christianity, poor things. It's just because they're unintelligent. But he's never examined the thing, and that isn't a sign of intelligence. That's the failure to be intelligent. Now, I'm asking you to think and to reason and to be intelligent and to apply your mind to the position that you take up. But here is another one. What is there about this gospel that makes it inherently something that an intellect must reject? Is this nonsense? Is this a form of gibberish? Is there some essential contradiction here? Is there anything here that in any way is insulting to the mind and the intellect of men? Well, I have only to ask my question, to answer the question. We know perfectly well that in this book there is that which has stimulated the mightiest minds, I say, of all the ages and has drawn them out and having read and having studied they all stand back with the Apostle Paul at the end and confess great is the mystery of godliness. It's so vast. It's so glorious. It's so immense. No, no. It's not a question of mind and of intellect. That's not the determining factor. And if I would adduce a final argument, it is just this one. And this in and of itself would have been quite enough. What happens when a man becomes a Christian? Think of a man who up to a point is not a Christian. Rubbish, he says, nonsense, nothing in it. And because of his great brain, he can't possibly believe it and accept it. But then I show you that same man later on a Christian and rejoicing in it. What's happened to him? Has his brain suddenly vanished? Has he suddenly lost his intellectual power? Has he suddenly become a fool? Is he now incapable of reason and logic and investigation and understanding? Of course he isn't. He's exactly the same man as regards his intellect. And his intellectual power and ability is in no sense diminished. Indeed, as I'm hoping to show you, it is greatly enhanced. Well, very well then, our Lord says that isn't the reason. Well, if it isn't intellect, I wonder whether it is some special knowledge. So many say that today. They say it's because of all this vast knowledge and learning that has come to us in the 20th century that they cannot possibly be Christian. I don't want to keep you with this. I simply answer that by saying this. I issue it as a challenge. What knowledge has become available in this 20th century that makes Christianity impossible. I'd like to know what it is. I've never heard of it yet. I haven't discovered it. I know of no knowledge, scientific or any other type of knowledge, that in any way causes me the slightest difficulty about believing this book which we call the Bible. I'd like to know what it is. There isn't any. Oh, but you say, uh, but we, we, we now have split the atom. All right, I'm well aware of it. But what's that got to do with the being of God? What's got, what has that got to do with your being as a man? What does that tell you about your soul? What does that tell you about death? It can produce death, but it doesn't tell you anything about death. What does that tell you about life beyond death? Nothing at all. You see, it's all very well to say, ah, oh, but science... 
Science doesn't touch these matters at all. It's got nothing to do with it. It's completely irrelevant. There is no new knowledge that has come in this century. And let us thank God for all the knowledge we've got, but none of it has any relevance at all to these matters that are dealt with in the Christian faith and in the Christian Bible. Completely irrelevant. Very well, you see, but people stand on that and say, I'm not a Christian because of my knowledge. As if nobody else had the knowledge. As if Christians were complete ignoramuses. And as if you couldn't have at one and the same time an atomic scientist and a Christian. But there are such men. How glibly we say these things. But how flimsy are their arguments the moment you face them and the moment you begin to examine them. And then let me put it like this. People talk about their difficulties and their problems. And these are always intellectual. But still I ask what problem is there, what difficulty, what perplexity which you have as a non-Christian which is not known to us who are Christians. I listen to many questions, and I'm always glad and delighted to do so. But I can say this honestly from this pulpit. I have never had a question put to me, but that I've already faced it many times over. I'm aware of them all. It is in spite of my knowing them all that I yet am a believer. So I argue, it isn't those questions that prevent your being a believer. And yet, you see, these are the things that men humbly imagine are the real reasons for their not coming to Christ. Very well then, let's leave the negative and come to the positive. What are the reasons then? If those are not the reasons, what are the reasons? Here our Lord begins to speak, and he points out that the real reason is very much deeper than all those. Where is the reason? Oh, he says, the reason is in the will. He will not come unto me. It's something altogether deeper in man's constitution than his mere brain and intellect and understanding. You see, the whole fallacy today is to think of men as if he were nothing but some sort of a, a machine, a brain, in a kind of vacuum, and he's a pure intellect, but man isn't a pure intellect. You analyze your life and you'll find it's not governed by intellect. There are other forces and factors much deeper, much stronger and more potent in us all that influence our understanding and our will and everything. There, says our Lord, is the reason why you won't come. You will not come unto me. Here it is, I say, down in the depths of our personality. Now, this is something that is emphasized everywhere in the scripture from beginning to end. And there is nothing that is more important than this. The modern man who is not a Christian humbly imagines that he has uh, freedom in the realm of thought and freedom in the realm of will. I, says the modern men, unlike these Christians who've been brought up to it and who just have swallowed it all without thinking at all, I, says the modern men, I am a free thinker. And I read the literature of the Rationalist Press Association, Free Thought. 
why I'm not governed by these shibboleths and I'm not tied down by what men have thought in the past. I approach everything in a new and in a scientific manner. I claim that I have free thought. And likewise, he claims that he's got a free will. In other words, his attitude is that, uh, well, as a free man, he's prepared to consider the case of the gospel. So he's prepared to read the Bible, he's prepared to listen to preaching, he's prepared to read books about this in absolute freedom, with this scientific detachment, uh, entirely free in all his processes, thinking and willing. And he says, well, of course, uh, if I wanted to... <laughs> I could become a Christian. I could say, yes, I'm going to join your church. I'm going to be a Christian. If I wanted to, I could. Now, says Christ, that's where you go wrong. You're not free. You're slaves. You're not free in your minds. You're not free in your wills. You will not come unto me. Why won't you come unto me? And the answer that he gives everywhere, and it's everywhere else in the New Testament, is this. That man is not free. Man is the slave of the devil. And he is the slave of sin. Did you notice how it was put in that 12th chapter of John, this gospel, which I read to you at the beginning? There it's put quite explicitly. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they couldn't, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. There's no such thing as freedom of thought and freedom of the will. The whole case which is put by the Bible is this, that when man fell, he lost his freedom. Adam was free. Adam was made perfect, and a part of his perfection was that he had a free will. But the moment Adam listened to the serpent, to the devil, he lost his freedom. He lost his freedom of thought, he lost his freedom of will. He has been a slave of the devil and a slave of sin. And he's not free. He cannot believe. He's not in a detached position. He's not in this supposed scientific position when he can look on in this dispassionate manner. No, no. He's hopelessly biased. That is the position taken up by the Bible everywhere. Listen to the Apostle Paul putting it. You see the Apostle Paul preached this gospel. Everybody didn't believe it. There were people who hated him for preaching it. There were people who rejected it with scorn. They called him a babbler. They poured their ridicule upon it. And the apostle, knowing that he wrote like this to the Corinthians in the second epistle, chapter 4, he says, if our gospel be hid, because it is hid to some, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. 
Very well then, here is the position, says our Lord. You will not, you cannot. Why? Well, because you're the slaves of the devil and the slaves of sin. How does this slavery work? Well, here are the two terms that are used. The first thing that the devil does to us is to blind us. The God of this world hath blinded their mind. You see, the difficulty is not with the mind as such. It's what the devil has done to the mind. The mind is all right, but if the mind is diseased, it cannot function. Look at the man there, suffering from an acute illness. He's talking nonsense. He's in a state of delirium. What's the trouble with the man? Is his trouble in his mind? No, no. His mind, as it were, is still all right, except that it's been poisoned. For the time being, the poison of the disease that he's suffering from is rendering his mind incapable of its normal action. The moment the disease is cured, the man's mind is perfect as it was before. That's the kind of thing that sin and Satan do to the mind. They produce this fatal and this hell blindness, this inability to see and to understand. What? Well, I only mentioned these things this evening. Why didn't those Jews believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, I'll tell you. It was because they were blind to their state and to their condition and to their danger. They thought that they were pleasing God, that they were good and religious people. And they didn't want to listen to these men. What was the trouble with them? Well, I say the trouble with them really was that they didn't know that they were lost, that they were dead in trespasses and sins, and that if they died like that, they would face God in the judgment and be condemned. Our Lord said later on, as you noticed in the 12th chapter, he says, I haven't come into the world to condemn the world. But you know, he says, I'll tell you what will condemn you. The word that I have spoken to you, it will rise up against you and condemn you in the judgment. Why? Well, I told you, but you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't believe. That's why people are not Christians. It isn't because they've got great brains and great minds and great intellects. It's because they don't realize the truth about themselves and their sinfulness. They don't face themselves. You see, it's about time I think we began to protest about these people who are protesting on grounds of morality against the atomic bomb. Who are they to talk about morality, passing as they've done, many of them, through the divorce court so frequently? They are in no position to make a moral protest. But they don't realize that. They stand objectively and talk about the moral iniquity of the atomic bomb. They've never faced their own lives, their own infidelity and their own moral treachery. They're blind to it. They don't see it. Still less do they see that with all their gifts and their intellects and their brilliant philosophizing that they've got to die like everybody else and after that they stand in judgment before God who will examine them about these things that they don't believe. 
I'll tell you why people are not Christian. It isn't because of their gigantic intellects. It's because they don't realize that when they die, they stand there and go either to hell or to heaven. They don't know that. They don't realize that they're blind to that. They live for the present. They don't look to the future. They don't know anything about that future. But they don't consider that. They can't prove anything about what happens after. They say, I don't believe there's life after death. What's the value of staking all upon your belief? Can you prove that there isn't a life after death? Can you prove there isn't a God and that there isn't a judgment and that there isn't a hell? Of course you can't. And I say a man who therefore says, I don't believe and therefore there isn't, is a fool. It's when a man begins to awaken to his sinfulness and his vileness and the fact that he's got to die and face God and that his whole everlasting and eternal future is in the balance, that he begins to pay attention. This is the thing. It wasn't his great mind. It's this thing that's drugging his mind, this evil influence that is paralyzing the mind. That's the trouble. And he is not only blind as to his own state and condition, oh, how tragically blind he is to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's something to me so terribly tragic about these people. I look at them and I see them there, standing and looking into the face of the Son of God in all his glory and his beauty and his majesty, and they hate him. What was the matter with them? Well, though they had eyes, they couldn't see. There was a kind of film over their eyes. They were so under the influence of this poison called sin that he became a monster to them. They couldn't see him. Everything was distorted. The image wasn't there. And so they're blind to him and all he has to give them and all he is ready to do for them. Isn't this a terrible state to be in, my friend? that you can consider and look at the record of the Son of God come into this world and say there's nothing in it, rubbish, nonsense. But that is what sin does, that's what the devil does. He blinds us, we don't see these things. We don't see ourselves, we don't see him, we don't realize that he and he alone can save us and that unless we come to him we remain lost. They don't see that they're blind to it. And they have no conception of what he has to give us. The Apostle Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Our Lord says here, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Life, my dear friend, isn't that the thing that everybody really needs? Life, life more abundant, eternal life, his own life, really living. They don't see it. Why? They say, what a narrow business. Oh, how hopeless. It's their blindness. It's their inability to see and to appreciate. But alas, unfortunately, sin and the devil not only blind us by nature, they create a positive antagonism to the truth. And all this is implicit, surely, in the word that our Lord uses here. He will not come unto me. 
Though I've done these signs and though I've spoken, you will not come. What's the matter? Well, he's suggesting that the trouble is, as I say, down in the realm of the affections and the sensibilities. It isn't purely intellect, it's much more down in this level. The devil and sin create within us an antagonism to Christ and to his gospel. As we've already been told in this gospel of John in chapter 3, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You know, my friend, as I was saying just now, there is no such thing as being neutral to Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as being passive. We are all either for him or against him. We all either love him or hate him. And these people, they hated him. It wasn't merely that they wouldn't believe in him. They positively hated him. And later on, they conspired together. They took up stones and hurled them at him. They conspired with the authorities and got him killed and removed out of the way. It was hatred, positive hatred. You see how foolish is this idea about an intellectual detachment. That's not the trouble. It is this deeper thing. The natural mind, says the Apostle Paul to the Romans, is enmity against God. Enmity against God is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. And let's be quite honest and plain about this. The man who's not a Christian really hates Christianity. And he hates Christ. Why? Well, the reasons are perfectly clear. We've all known them. We've all experienced them up to a point. And here they are. Why did these people hate the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching? Why does every man and woman who is not a Christian rarely hate him and hate the teaching still? Oh, I'll tell you. It is because the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching hurts our pride. The intellect is not the trouble. It's intellectual pride that is the trouble. It's pride of intellect that is the essential difficulty, not the intellect itself. Well, now, how does it work? Well, I'll tell you, it works like this. You see, if you come to Jesus Christ, this is what you're really saying. He said, except he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. He said again, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He tells us that we've got to become as little children. He tells us that we must be born again, made anew. Go right back to the beginning. He calls upon us to surrender ourselves utterly and absolutely to him in mind and will and in every other respect. He says, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Now, there's no need to argue about this. All that to the natural, non-Christian men 
is nothing but a sheer insult. And he hates it. He says, look here, what you're virtually saying is this, that all my intellectual understanding and all my ability is useless. What you're telling me, he says, is this, that though I'm a great philosopher, that I'm no better than the man who can't think at all. That's what you're saying. You're insulting me. You're saying that all my intellectual achievement and understanding is of no value to me. Why, he says, that's a sheer insult to me. And he resents it, and he hates the one who says it. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that however great our minds are, they're never great enough. That a man by searching cannot find out God, that God is in heaven and we are on earth. That though we are so marvelous and so wonderful and we have devised these things and made our inventions and searched out and brought so many hidden things to light and though we are 20th century men, that in the sight of God, why, we are nothing but flies and less. And that if you put all our minds into one and multiply it by a million, it would still be hopelessly inadequate to encompass the mind of God and to understand it. But the modern man hates that. He's proud of his intellect. He's proud of his understanding. He's always contrasting himself with previous ages. Of course, he said, they were unenlightened. They lived in the dark. They were still in the backwards. We've arrived! But where have you arrived, my dear friend? Am I insulting your intellect when I say that your mind and mine and that of the whole world is totally inadequate to comprehend the infinite and the absolute and the eternal? Why should this insult you? Face it and begin to think about it. We don't even understand ourselves. We don't understand our universe. How can we possibly understand God? But the modern man, I say, hates the very suggestion and feels that we're insulting him because we say that his mind isn't big enough. You know, there's nothing new about this. The Apostle Paul says that was the main reason why the Greeks didn't believe the gospel nearly 2,000 years ago. He says it was pride of intellect. God hath made foolish the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world that regarded the cross as folly. But he also feels that it insults him by telling him that all his achievements are of no value. And now, you see, I'm thinking of the very good, moral, good-living modern man who is not a Christian. You know them, don't you? Oh, I'm not talking now about somebody who lives in the gutter. I'm talking about somebody who lives very respectably in the suburbs of life with a detached house in every respect. Who's got high ideals and who's out to help humanity and who lives to do good doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christ, never seen himself a sinner. He hates this gospel and he hates Christ. And I'll tell you why. It is because Christ comes to him and tells him that all his righteousness is but as 
filthy rags. Or to use the language of the Apostle Paul, that all his goodness, all his kind deeds, all the sacrifices that he makes, let's grant he makes them, yes, all, says Paul, is nothing but dung and refuse, putrefying matter. It's offensive in the sight of God. That, says the Lord Jesus Christ to the Pharisees, that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. And of course, the moment this man hears this, he says, this is downright insulting. Your gospel says that I am in the same position as the prostitute and the adulterer and the murderer. And it does say that. That's exactly what it says. And the modern man says, no, I can't believe it. It's insulting. He hates it. And when it goes on to tell him that if he lived to be a thousand and more, that all his efforts and his strivings will avail him nothing and will never be enough, he hates it still more. He will not come. Why, he says, it means that I have to humble myself and say that I'm a failure and a fool, that my mind is useless and that all my achievements are nil. I've got to come like everybody else, the publicans and the sinners and the vile and the refuse. But it does say that, and he will not come because he hates it. It touches his pride. It touches the pride of all. And it is entirely contrary to our nature. And this is why so many hate it. The reason why people reject the gospel is not their great and brilliant intellectual understanding. The real reason is moral. The gospel of Christ condemns what we like and what we love. It examines us, it searches us, it reveals our sins to us and it condemns them without any hesitation. It says they're wrong and that they're evil and that they must be given up. It asks us to forsake them, but we love them. This is the condemnation, that men love darkness. And you know, I can give you a proof of the extent of their love of their darkness and of their evil life and their evil deeds. They love it so much that they'll clutch at anything that has a semblance of intellectual argument and position to justify the life of sin that they're living. That's why they'll believe anything they read in a newspaper against the gospel. It's the conspiracy to justify us in a life of sin. It's always moral. The gospel condemns what we like. And it commands what we hate. Isn't that true? We know very well that to be a Christian means that we must stop doing certain things. And we don't want to stop doing them. We know equally well that it means taking up certain things. If I'm to be a Christian, I must follow Christ. That means I walk in the light, not in darkness. That means that I follow a way of holiness. 
not a way of giving rein to my lusts and passions and feeding my desires. And I don't want that. I don't like that as a natural man. I want to do what I like. And I don't want to spend my time following Christ and praying and reading the Bible and trying to follow the example of all the saints of the centuries and to live the kind of life that is depicted in the Sermon on the Mount. The natural man doesn't want it. He hates it. And so you see the devil not only blinds our minds, he creates within us this antagonism to truth, this bitter hatred of morality and chastity and holiness. And so men hated the Son of God and crucified him and hated all that he stood for and taught and all that he offered. My dear friend, I've held the position before you for this reason, as I said at the beginning. Can you see what a terrible state to be in is to be in that state of not being a Christian? Can't you see the enormity of loving darkness and hating light? Can't you see the utter folly of being proud of something that gets you nowhere? What's the use of being proud of your intellect when it is so obviously failing men in this modern world and must fail them always where God is concerned What's the value of being proud of your great mind when you know that it's going to decay and you're going to die and you're going on and you know nothing about what's there and your great brain can't penetrate through the veil? What's the value of being proud of a mind that doesn't help you when you need it most of all? Isn't it monstrous and ridiculous to be proud of achievements? that in the sight of God are nothing but abomination? Is there any greater folly, I say, than to be proud of ourselves as we are as nature and to refuse the offer of the gospel? Is there any blindness comparable to this blindness? that fails to recognize the Son of God, that fails to believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is there a greater madness than this than to go on your way saying nonsense, rubbish, nothing in it, 20th century knowledge has exploded it all, I don't like it, and to go on and on and know you're going to die and refuse pardon. To refuse this message that tells you that though you may have committed every sin that human nature is guilty of and can ever be guilty of, or is ever capable of, that the Son of God died for you and that awful guilt, that God might forgive you and forgive you freely. 
that your sins can be blotted out tonight, nay more, that you can be given a new life and a new nature, a new start and a new beginning, that God can work this miracle in you, that it doesn't matter what you've been, however lacking you are in intellect or in morality or in anything else, it doesn't matter at all, because a man never makes himself a Christian. It is God in Christ by the Holy Spirit, who makes Christians by this new creation, and he puts a new life into us, and a new principle. Is there anything more appalling than to refuse, and to reject all that, and to have nothing to do with it? Is there a greater madness than the madness which leads men and women to hold on to a life that is wrong in itself and evil and small in itself for only a few years and to reject an offer that gives us everlasting and eternal joy and pleasure and happiness and glory in the presence of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the just men, the spirits of just men made perfect and all the holy angels. My dear friend, can't you see the unspeakable folly of this position? If you feel you're dead and lifeless, if you still feel that you see nothing in Christ and in his gospel, well then I say, realize that it's for the reasons that I've given you, and cry out unto God to deliver you. It is Christ alone who can deliver you out of the clutches of the devil and of sin. Cry out unto him. Ask him to have pity and to have mercy upon you. Say, I see these things. I see them dimly. I see them vaguely. Lord, deliver me out of this appalling state in which they're unreal and I'm not sure of them. Ask him by his spirit to open your eyes and to enable you to believe and to give you the certain knowledge that here in this world you can become a child of God and when you die, go on to be with him and to enjoy him to all eternity. If you but saw this terrible position, you will not come unto me. You would be so alarmed, you'd cry out at once, I say, cry now, ere it be too late. Realize the cause of your unbelief and apply without tarrying unto him who alone can deliver you and set you free. And you know, the moment you apply to him, he will tell you that in order to set you free, he's already died for you. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Why? To save, to set you free, to deliver you. Go to him and he'll smile upon you. But you say, I've been a terrible sinner. He'll say, I died for sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Go to him. Your sin is the greatest claim upon his love. Go to him as you are. And I assure you in his blessed name, he will receive you this evening and set you free. Amen.